This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose. There was a recent column in a major publication in which a critic assailed the field of history for being too esoteric. The executive director of the American Historical Association, Jim Grossman, responded saying that the critic should have talked to actual historians about why fields that may seem esoteric are actually very valuable. Today's guests are the editors of the Oxbook Handbook of American Women's and Gender History, Ellen Hardigan O'Connor and Lisa Matterson, both professors of history at the University of California, Davis. Today, we're going to be talking about the field of women's studies, which, as they've argued in the introduction to this book, is not an esoteric topic at all, but actually quite critical to the study of history. Welcome to the studio. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. So, um... I don't want to steal the thunder from the intro to the book, but uh, let's talk a little bit about um, how history has traditionally been recounted um, and why there is a need for women's history and and why it's actually a very important topic. So why don't we start off with um, what you address is what has history normally consisted of when people have told it uh, from the perspective of gender? Well, I think um, actually... Many people have been interested in women's history. I think there's a long tradition of what are sometimes called women worthies, so queens and nuns, um, famous people. I think also people are very interested in their women in their families' history. It's very common for people to be fascinated with their grandmothers or stories of where great-grandmothers came from. I agree that Many students, and Lisa and I both teach uh, American women's history at UC Davis, many students come in with an understanding of history as being set by nation states and Mm -hmm. high politics. And traditionally, those are not taught with much attention to gender. That's changing. But most students have not had a lot of exposure to social history, cultural history, um, places where women and gender have always been much more prominent. Yes. And to add, the importance of understanding history from the perspective of only half of the population, placing women's and gender history at the center of inquiries about the American past is foundational to understanding uh, basic narratives of U.S. history. And if that history is only written with sources about half of the population, um, it's not a realistic history of the United States. And what we think of as U.S. history looks foundationally different when we put women and gender at the center. Basic narratives don't appear as one might expect. Um, So as one colleague has pointed out, many people think of of history or U.S. history as a painting, and that something like women's and women's and gender history as something you come along and you just add a few things that have been left out. But really, women's and gender history is about repainting altogether, refashioning the entire image. Um, And it looks quite different when the other half of the population is included in the writing of this history. So, uh, I know from my own work that 
I, I personally focus on the peasant class of Egypt. And one of the things that's very difficult is this is a group of people that didn't tend to leave sources behind and trying to find ways to get into their perspectives. Um, how does one document or how can we document understand this more complete picture of American history through voices that haven't been explored or, or uh, given as much uh, prominence in our historical narrative? So the core of women's and gender history as a field is, is uh, archive innovation because, uh, to your point about you know, the, the lack of sources or voices don't appear in archives. The whole fil- field is um, built around, in many instances, writing histories of people who um, either appear sparsely in records, in court cases, um, in business correspondence, or in diplomatic treaties, for, for example. Um, so they appear either very infrequently or not at all. Um, And alternatively, these are archives uh, or the records that have been created not from the perspective of women. And so um, as a result, the field has developed a a range of approaches that interrogate the archive uh, and are um, innovative in the in the way that they approach it to recover the history of of, of those um, of women, for example, and and those individuals who are are not meant or haven't historically been appeared in the archive. And I think it's worth mentioning that what are sometimes just referred to as silences or the sources are not there. I think the most recent scholarship on um, women's and gender history points out that. Those silences are deliberate. The, mm-hmm. the, the sources are the result of um, records created by people and institutions in order to consolidate power. That, that was an essential part of creating the archive is to consolidate power over um, women over other women, men over women, heterosexuals over non-binary folks. And so rather than to lament uh, the sources that are not there, um, it's the task of women's and gender historians both to read against the grain, as they say, but also to critically analyze the way that the archive itself deliberately silences these voices. Um, the example that Lisa and I talked about recently um, had to do with non-binary conforming people. And this is an example from the turn of the 19th century. Um, in, in the early 19th century, there was an obituary that described uh, a person who had died after a long marriage. Um, and in passing, this obituary mentioned that this Lewis person had, as a young person dressed as a woman, uh, and then married and had a large family. And most of the obituary really affirms his masculinity, calls him he throughout, talks about how he has a wife and children, and so um, covers over what could be a very complex story, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know who is the father of the child that was born of this union, but in the way that the obituary recreates the story of this person's life, they affirm his this person's maleness, their heterosexuality, um, gives legitimacy to this relationship that may have been a same-sex marriage or may have been all kinds of um, non-binary folks coming together, living their lives in the past. Um, And that 
that's not evident if you just look at the obituary. You don't necessarily realize it because the obituary is telling the story of a long-lived individual and granting him manly honor. Interesting. Can I add on to that a little bit? You absolutely may. So I'm really building on some of the ideas that Ellen has mentioned. By looking at an example like this, what you really can see is um, kind of the Even though it's just a sliver of this history or this person's experience, um, you really can see the kind of potential depth and persistence of non-binary history. Um, and it also offers, and this is, these are examples of the way that the field, um, provides us a window into histories that are, um, not, who have been written out purposely, um, from the records, from the archives. It gives us, uh, also, a some insight into, um, the lived experiences of people who have transgressed heterosexual norms, of a given era. So just to add on, this is our some specific ways taking this example uh, where uh, scholars in the field can then open it up and think about the different um, sides to what it reveals about the structure of a society um, and the, um, the expectations and the way that power dynamics operate. Can you... Um Talk a little bit about the linkages and also the, the the differences or the tensions between the fields of women's and gender history. I think chronologically in thinking about the way these fields developed within historical scholarship, um, women's history emerged first. It emerged uh, as a desire to recover the past um, that had not been uh, recorded, a desire um, growing out of women's activism uh, in the 20th century as well to um, insist on the equal validity of men and women in the past. Um, And it's interesting when you look at uh, the people who wrote some of the first um, academic studies of women's history in the late 20th century, or the second half of the 20th century, they often were not trained as women's historians. They were radicalized by their political experience, Mm -hmm. and their political experience drove them to look harder uh, at the kinds of sources that we're talking about. And so they were uh, uncovering a story of people silenced, a story of people ignored. But they were also changing what counted as history, right? The idea that what pregnancy was like for a poor person in the 17th century is history mm-hmm. was a novel idea in many ways, right? That this is not just what a female body does from time immemorial, <laughs> but that rather has a specific history and specific significance. Um, This is really an important idea that comes out of early women's history. Now, almost immediately as well, there are tensions within that field over basically who are you calling women? Mm -hmm. The the idea that um, there's a unified female past is very quickly demolished, uh, particularly by scholars of color who are taking their colleagues to task for assuming universal female experience that being pregnant in the 17th century meant something very different if you were a poor enslaved woman and if you were a poor free white woman. And that fruitful dialogue, at times tense, at times um, very productive, um, continues to this day. Uh, Gender history, I think, also stemmed from a desire to integrate these 
interesting stories into bigger narratives, political narratives, cultural narratives. One of the things that's quite interesting is that a lot of people who who wrote really important books in when it moves into a field of gender history wrote their first book on women's history. So it's not a coincidence that you have these authors who are first writing for someone like um, Joanne Meyerowitz, who's writing about... um, uh, women in the furnished district of Chicago, then writing a history of um, trans individuals. And so there is a deep connection. Um, and um, so that that would be some of the things that's important to understand the trajectory of the way that um, women's and gender historians has emerged in the field. One of the interesting things, too, in thinking about gender history that Lisa and I came across in working on this project and really led us to multiple revisions of the table of contents and which authors we were contacting was the question of whether studying gender history requires you to give men and women equal time. Is that what gender history means? Mm -hmm. And we concluded pretty quickly that it doesn't, um, that what we wanted to do instead was to think of um, the story we were telling as being critical about when and how people deployed ideas about manliness Mm -hmm. or ideas about femininity in order to secure hierarchy. Because that's a key part of what gender history is about, is understanding the way words that appear to be linked to sexual difference are used to shore up ideas about power or ideas about hierarchy. And sometimes that's connected to actual men and actual women. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it isn't. Oftentimes it stands in for uh, other kinds of power relationships that are supposed to be or that are intended to be shored up. Yeah, and the other thing that's important to recognize with the history, of this question of what is the relationship between women's history and gender history, is there have been there have been tensions historically um, within the field, concerns that you know, as Ellen's talking about, is it does it mean giving men and women equal time uh, to include gender history? In other words, it's a um, kind of losing the what's there, there in women's history, Mm -hmm. if it just becomes men's history again, um, in other words. And um, so, uh, but if you look at the field now, what really has emerged, not some of these concerns that it would um, kind of turn away from this original space for recovering and writing the experiences of of women in the United States, uh, American history, um, what you see is um, really what what is a big tent of history that brings together women's and gender history. And it's, it's a very rich uh, uh, interplay between um, these two parts, if you will, of, of the field. And the example I'd give from my teaching concerns the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. So I teach uh, the American women's history from time immemorial until the Civil War. And then Lisa just covers the last 125 years. <laughs> just. <laughs> I know, we, I happens. get off, yeah. So when I'm lecturing on uh, the Revolutionary War, I'm thinking about how women's and gender history go together. So one of the things I talk about are um, women's participation in military camps uh, and the presence of women as laundresses, 
as well as cooks, as well as nurses, all kinds of support work that they're doing, for instance, in Washington's army and in the British army, right? There, there's a standard ratio of the number of women to men that you need in an army that the British uh, are much more uh, rigorous about. And Washington's army being newer uh, is more lax, and it leads to a disaster at Valley Forge. And one of the reasons it leads to a disaster at Valley Forge is not only do the troops not have enough women to do support work, but the men, the soldiers, have ideas about who should be washing their clothes and keeping track of their bandages. And because they believe it to be gendered women's work, they won't do it, even as their own feet are freezing off. And so one of the first things that um, the you know, renovation of Washington's army that, that happens after that terrible winter is to bring in more women. Um, that they have a terrible time convincing soldiers. No, actually, you need to be care- aware of your body care as well. Um, and so that's a story that's both about gender, ideas about what appropriate work is, and women. Here are people who were paid to serve the army, um, just in a different role than a soldier. Let me uh, read a pa- short sentence from the uh, the introduction, which you co-wrote. Um, which is that you comment that the uh, chapters in the in the, the book um, come together using different perspectives and quote the essays don't map onto familiar familiar assertions that the continent's history that of North America flowed from enslavement to freedom from constraint from constraint to liberty and from discrimination to rights. Um, I'm wondering if you have a particularly favorite illustration of this or something that you found in, in compiling this collection that really sort of shed light on on this. Um, because to me, when I was reading the intro, this really sort of rang, tr- you know, as the sort of, this is why this is an important story, because it completely upends the normal narrative of what is understood as American history. So one of the ways that it disrupts this narrative is that if you look at the uh, women's and gender history, it's... It's really about the migration of people, money, and goods that are at the heart of American women's history. And the only way that you can kind of see this as a whole is to look beyond the nation. Um, So one example is uh, the entrance of of white middle-class women into the the paid labor force after World War II. Um, And... This is an era of great productivity for the United States after World War II. Um, But this productivity really rests on the reproductive labor of of other women, um, largely women in color and migrant women. And and I should mention by reproductive labor – it's the the reproduction of of the family and the the dailiness of of life. So um, this great story of uh, of productivity of post war productivity, we can only really understand it in this transnational context of the migration of um, uh, populations, women from in many instances developing nations who are uh, 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 oftentimes. Um, 
very underpaid historically, um, don't have the same benefits uh, of the era that were extended um, during this moment of great productivity and um, benefit enhancement for for many of Americans. And so within that context, it's, it's quite different. And so it really is not just a story of of upward product productivity um, in the economy, but one, a much uh, more complicated story. And there are many stories like that. If you can take the case of the history of, you know, the sexual revolution of the 1960s and the 1970s, for, you know, for many women, the pill, the female oral contraceptive, the pill became uh, approved by the FDA in 1960. And very quickly within a year, it was uh, widely being used. Uh, and it gave them some control over their um, reproductive lives. And, and this is a story of expand, you know, liberation or expanding freedoms for one group of women. But of course, um, it is the case, it's, and it's well known that uh, the uh, testing of the pill was done in some of the barrios in uh, in San Juan, around San Juan, and that Puerto Rican women in a U.S. colony suffered terribly as part of the production of the pill and other reproductive. Um, so there's there's this dark history to be sure they and they're and they're not separate. They're not just kind of coincidental. They're uh, well. Let me stop at that. Yeah. So there's. Uh, another example that I like to give from 100 years yeah. prior to that, right, at the time of the American Revolution and immediately afterward, a time that we tend to think of as the expansion of the franchise and into the 19th century, um, the expansion of democracy in the 19th century. And of course, um, when you look at uh, women's history, you see uh, a much more jagged story. So the the favorite example that I use in my teaching pertains to women in New Jersey, right, who um, initially when the voting rights are or when New Jersey articulates who can vote, which previous to the American Revolution was a privilege associated with property owning, um, during and after the revolution, new states begin to write in specific voting laws in which they set age barriers, um, they lower the property rights, and they begin to expand the franchise to all residents. Um, in the case of New Jersey, it, it mentioned specifically that the right to vote would be available to all inhabitants um, who owned a certain low amount of property. And when that was, when women began, property owning women began to vote in small numbers in New Jersey, um, this issue came up before the legislature and the and the, they were asked whether they should af affirmatively grant women the right to vote uh, in the early 19th century. And a male legislator said, they, we don't need to, that all maids, black or white, have this right. Well, what happened soon after that was, of course, a contested election in which there were claims that there was voter fraud and we need to clamp down on this. And the result instead was a set of laws that specified the right to vote by gender and race as well. So at the same time that the franchise is being expanded to white men, no longer needing to have a certain amount of properties, some real um, true democratic principles there, it is being deliberately and specifically closed to all people of color and white women at the same time. And that was a way to make voting seem natural um, in that it was tied to supposed bodily differences that you could see. You could see who showed up at the polls and whether that person was supposedly a white man or a white woman or a black man or a black woman. Um, and there was this linking of 
the right to vote, which of course is a specific right rooted in law, to ideas about natural differences among people. So a moment of expansion, but also a moment of contraction and hardening of ideas about race and gender. This is absolutely fascinating, and I wish we could just continue with unlimited time, but unfortunately we cannot. The Oxford Handbook of American Women's and Gender History uh, is out from Oxford University Press. If you teach American history, you should definitely check it out. Ellen Hardigan O'Connor and Lisa Maderson, thank you so much for being with us in the studio. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This has been another episode of 15-Minute History. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive director is Joan Newberger, and our technical editors are Augusta Delomo and Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Development Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.